Welcome to Pen Daily, brought to you by the Daily Pennsylvanian. My name is Isabella Simonetti, president of the DP. I'm Alec Druggan. I'm the podcast producer here. We have a very special guest today from 34th Street Magazine, campus editor Sam Mitchell. <laughs> That's right. I, uh, I am the campus editor um, for 34th Street Magazine, also the former podcast editor um, for the Daily Pennsylvanian. From humble roots to humble ends. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, when you when you make podcasts well enough, they eventually let you return to written work. Um. We hope so in this department. <laughs> Real bad. Okay, so last week we had an incredibly interesting issue which featured Dining Ex Machina, a story about how um, like the micromarkets are taking over on-campus dining facilities. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that process, that feature, and how that story worked out? Totally. So um, th this is something that, uh, this is a topic that we've been talking about writing a feature on for a while now. Um, and it's, it's something that people really noticed cropping up last semester, uh, which is that Frontera closed uh, and Mark's Cafe closed uh, around the, the same time period. And we're both replaced by these quote unquote micro markets, which um, for those who don't know, are these sort of self-service stations where you can grab a little snack off a shelf um, or a drink out of one of the drink machines, you pay for it. Um, sort of a self-checkout thing like you might see at CVS or, or Frogro, which, you know, rest in peace, obviously. Um, and this raises a lot of concerns, right? There's the immediate concern, which is that um, students were used to those uh, dining options existing. Now they don't. Frontera particularly was a very popular spot for people to sort of sabs outside of, and um, it's been interesting to watch the differences there. We uh, love sabsing. D do we? Does, does uh, Penn Daily endorse sabsing? Um, we have no comment, but Sam, for those out there that don't know, what does sabzing mean? Oh, sabzing stands for uh, see and be seen. Um, and the idea is that Frontera was in the Arch building, and outside of the Arch building, there's this whole area with some seats, and uh, they face out right, right on a locust walk. And so if you get your little Frontera chips and whatever um, back when it existed, you could then take those and sit out in the little courtyard area outside of the Arch building and when all of your friends would walk by on Locust on their way to class or whatever, um, they would see you and you could sort of, it's, it's a way to, to be in the scene, to, to be noticed and to, to uh, like have those fun conversations that we like to have on Locust, which is like, oh my God, like I haven't seen you in so long. Like let's definitely get coffee. Uh, for people that are seeking out that sort of thing, that was a good spot to hang out. That wouldn't be me personally, but um, yeah. You still see, see people doing that, for, for the record. It's just no longer with Frontera food, so it's kind of, I think, changed the dynamic a little bit. But not, not to get too far astray from the point, which is that um, not only did it change the way that students interact with these places, but it also raised the immediate question of what, uh, what is going to happen with the people that used to work at those, those places. And um, as people may know, Penn is not an insignificant employer. It, after the city of Philadelphia itself, it's the biggest single employer uh, in the city, and Philadelphia is the sixth largest city in the country. So you're talking about a ton of people. Obviously, uh, an organization like Penn, that includes several hospital systems. Uh, that includes all of the sort of university administration, faculty, staff. It's a huge number of people. Um, Penn Dining is just one part of that, but it, it's not an insignificant thing in the community um, to have those jobs. And so it it's a real concern. And, of, of course, Penn was very fast to... Um, sort of uh, reaffirm that no jobs were lost, everybody was going to be moved 
to a new place to work. And um, we don't know exactly where um, the, the workers in question were moved, but um, sort of raised this, this broader question, which has come up you know, everywhere from science fiction to the 2020 presidential campaign, uh, which is about how will automation impact uh, jobs? How will automation impact the way that we as consumers interact with uh, sort of the, the, the businesses that we, that we are, are patrons of? Um, this is just sort of a microcosm of that very broad issue which has been going on for decades, if not centuries. Um, and, and diving into this story uh, led us to, to talk to a number of interesting people. I think chief among them, or my, my favorite interview from the piece, was uh, we had the opportunity to talk to the treasurer of the, uh, the local chapter of the Teamsters Union in Philadelphia, which is the union that represents Penn Dining staff. Um, and that was a really enlightening conversation because it sort of ran counter to the narrative that you would get if you just talked to the Penn administration, um, which of course wants to put the best sort of face forward for Penn. Um, that's not always the case, obviously. Uh, and what, what we learned from talking with the rep for the union is that it wasn't so simple as Penn saying, oh, we're going to do this automation, but everybody's going to keep their job. In fact, uh, according to this union representative, uh, the original thought was that Penn was going to cut those jobs and those people would be laid off. And it was only after uh, the union stepped in and said, you know, we have these contracts and we're not going to allow you to do this, that those, those jobs were saved. Um, and in fact, Penn, at least according to what they said to us, is not planning on automation in the future that would cut jobs. And in fact, the, the micro market at Frontera is supposed to eventually go back to a sort of hot food uh, style place that would presumably employ some workers in the future. Um, of course, it's unclear exactly what that would look like. So do we know um, what the future of automated dining looks like at Penn? I mean, we, we definitely don't, and I think it belies the larger issue, is th which is that we don't know what automation holds for all of us in the future. Um, and that's sort of the, the angle of the piece that, that I think brings us to these really interesting questions. Because, uh, you know, you can imagine, uh, with even just given current technology, a lot of the stuff that goes on at Penn Dining could be automated. Um, that's certainly not to say that it would be able to do the same service that is currently done by the Penn Dining workers, but, but just in, in sort of a theoretical sense, it, if Penn was motivated to really cut costs to the bone, um, which, you know, Penn runs like a business and, and that's something that they take into consideration, uh, they could probably significantly scale back the, the workforce. Um, and um, they've, at least for the time being, indicated that they're not interested in doing that, but that's sort of a short-term short thing, you know. As these technologies continue to, to develop, it's, it's really impossible for any of us to predict what would happen. Um, and then I think it's going to have a lot to do with uh, the unions and the workers themselves uh, and whether they're able to um, hold on to the sort of contracts and the bargains that they've made with Penn, wh whether those are honored moving forward or, or how that all shakes out. It's, it's very complicated stuff. Um, and, and, and the broader point about the technological development just being, you know, um, who knows what jobs will become totally obsolete in the future uh, if, if there's some sort, not, not to get too science fiction-y with it, but if there's some sort of food-making robot that uh, Penn's able to, to, <laughs> to, to get, you know, that, that's, not, that's something that, that's like laughable now, but it's not inconceivable in, in the long term. Um, 
And it's not inconceivable that all of our jobs could could eventually become automated, and 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 our skill set, uh, our sort of contribution to the labor market could become obsolete. And and so it, this this story, th this very simple little change that was made uh, just in these two spots on Penn's campus, uh, in the Arch Building and the basement of Van Pelt, uh, are tied into this this much bigger conversation about what a society would look like, right, in which. Um, major sectors of the economy are fully automated um, where, you know, and, and, and we've, we've already seen these things. They, they have massive political and social implications, right? Just look at what's going on in the Rust Belt. Um, you know, people talk about jobs being shipped off uh, to China, to Mexico, but uh, actually the number one factor that caused all those manufacturing plants in the Rust Belt, places like Ohio and Pennsylvania to be closed, um, was automation, was manufacturing jobs being replaced by robots. And, and so this is not, you know, for, for jobs like journalism or, or whatever, you know, the three of us are in, um, it might be a little more far off in the future. But for a lot of people, this is here and now. This is a conversation that needs to be had right now. Um, and it is something that, you know, I, I don't know if as a society we have really grappled with yet, but we're, we're going to be forced to soon. Yeah, I thought the story did a really great job of understanding what was happening at Penn, but also like showing the further implications and the repercussions of what was happening at Penn across all, and as it says, nearly every sector in society. Moving on, another story that I thought was really interesting in the past week was what happens when shows leave Netflix. And it's a little bit more lighthearted, but basically the story features like Friends and The Office and other such shows that have since left the air on Netflix because of a variety of reasons. Do you want to talk a bit more about that piece? Yeah, so so that was a great piece um, in our film and TV section. And, and I think it's something that, you know, uh, is, is something that a lot of Penn students probably have an experience with. I, I know it, it led off with uh, Friends, which is not a show that I personally watch, but I know a ton of people do. Um, and that when it, uh, when it left Netflix, that was something that was sort of uh, th threw a wrench into a lot of people's a part of people's lives they didn't really think about, right? So, so this this piece, um, if you're interested, uh, definitely would recommend reading it. Talks about the way that Netflix license shows, um, and and the 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 way that when those contracts uh, come up for renewal, um, especially with the sort of uh, explosion in new um, new streaming services, the way that shows can get shopped around and and end up uh, in in any sort of place and and no longer uh, on Netflix. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion around The Office, um, which I know a lot of people watch, um, and that will be uh, leaving Netflix because NBC, which obviously produced the show originally um, and, and I guess continues to own the rights to it, um, is starting their own streaming service and uh, wants to, uh, I, I assume they want to motivate people to actually adopt that new streaming service. They're trying to break into that market, and so they're going to be having The Office exclusively on NBC. Um, and so the, the piece talks about that and other sort of new developments um, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting topic. I mean, the, the way that people in our generation consume, uh, you know, movies and, and television shows and stuff like that through these streaming services, I think it's, um, something that is not necessarily super well understood, but, uh, it's really interesting. So yeah, that, that was a great piece. And what are your personal thoughts on friends in the office? Oh, um, I really, I really like the office. Uh, I've watched all the seasons I, I think it's kind of it's one of those shows it's good to put on in, in the background or whatever you know um i'm i didn't really i don't really think friends is that funny personally i'm not into it 
I, I, I tried a couple times. I have a lot of friends that watch it. Um, yeah, I wasn't personally into it, that, that brand of whatever. But yeah, The Office actually, so I have a, a, a personal um, connection to this story in that, um, so over winter break, I was able to participate in a Penn Global seminar um, that took my class to Paris, France. Um, for those Paris, who don't France. know, for those who don't know where Paris is, um, bonjour. No, so anyway, it, it, it was it was yeah. Uh, Paris was cool, but one of the things that I learned, um, you know, the, there's a lot of a lot of crazy different things in Europe. They speak different languages. They got different types of food, all sorts of different architecture. It's a crazy place. A- Alec knows. He spent some time in Italy or whatever. I, I don't know. But um, point is. <laughs> Isabel is going to France for spring break. Oh, really? Yeah, but oh, you're fine. talking to two Italians. Right? Oh, yeah. She, she's hey, from New York. Forget about it. <laughs> okay, th- so the, the, the point of the story is, look. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, my, my paisans, just uh, relax here. <laughs> so in, in France or whatever, there's different uh, licensing agreements for different countries. And so in France, the office wasn't available when I got there. Um, and that, so I, w- the first night I was there, I w- was just like lying in my hotel room because um, we'd had a really long day. We had like a red eye flight and then we had a whole day of activities afterwards. I, I don't really sleep on planes. So I was wicked tired. So I was going to put the office on and go to sleep. And then it wasn't available. And I was so confused. I was like looking up articles about like, have they taken the office off Netflix like while I was on the fucking plane? Um, I didn't know, but I was very confused. I eventually figured it out like the next day. But yeah, that's my story. So check this piece out. Um, it's good. What I what I love about this piece is it ignores the like probably less than one percent of Netflix subscribers, like my grandmother, who still get the DVDs mailed to them. And <laughs> I didn't know that that was still, still an, an option. option? Yeah. Yeah. I th- she might be grandfathered in, or it's still an option. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. That is but incredible. I do know Wait, that she's grandfathered in, but she's your grandmother. Actually, <laughs> actually, I don't think she's grandfathered in because I get the same thing when I look for a show and it's like oh you can still rent it as like part of a yeah. like, package deal where you like can get mailed stuff to you right. i think it works as a movie rental thing so they're allowed to rent it to you that way so i think that's like a smart way netflix is getting around it interesting yeah because i guess once you have the physical dvd like th- what are they how are they going to stop you from renting it to people and i don't think they can uh, yeah that's i don't think they just, can you just own that and there's probably laws that protect like the block blockbusters of old right so <laughs> moving forward um i really liked last last week's issue and a lot of the stories that came out last week but let's talk about what's coming up this week what's the feature what yeah. can people find today on uh 34th street's website 34st.com definitely check out the website pick up the issue um if you're listening to this on wednesday which you should be because you should have notifications turned on for this podcast and you should download it as soon as it comes out, even if you're in class, um, and listen to it. Especially if you were in class. Yeah, that's right. Um, Then on your way out of the class that you're in, that you're listening to this right now, um, probably in the building that you're in, there's a copy of 34th Street. Definitely grab it. No, okay, so the the Coalition Against Fraternities and Sexual Assault is a new organization that um, has popped up. uh, I believe it started last semester. Um, but just this semester, uh, several of the members have broken out of the uh, anonymity that the, the group had previously kept um, and are talking about their stories, uh, talking openly about the aims of the group, trying to engage with the community. They, they held a town hall that we reported on it in the DP. Um, and so this feature is looking at 
uh, CAFSA, we, we had the opportunity to talk to some administrators, talking to, um, you know, students, students involved in CAFSA, students involved in Greek life, stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about this piece. Uh, I'm excited for everyone to read it now that it's out uh, and <laughs> the, the issue's out when this, when this podcast drops. Um, I think it's something that, you know, we're, we're on a campus where a sizable proportion of the student body is in Greek life, and nearly everybody else has some sort of connection to it, um, whether you hate it, whether you love going to the parties. It's something that has touched a lot of people, um, and it obviously, which is, you know, the sort of the central issue for CAFSA, it's uh, visually very, um, very big part of our campus, spatially, very because when you walk down Locust Walk, um, there's fraternities lining the side uh, up mm-hmm. the whole way, mixed in with the um, Penn Women's Center, the academic buildings that, that are on Locust Walk. Um, and so I, th- I think, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting issues um, being brought up here, and, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to sort of dive a little deeper into those in this feature. Um, and, and talk about that. Fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, just some, what kind of, do you have any information about, like, the sources? Um, I mean, we're, we're talking to um, a number of the people who have shed their anonymity um, mm-hmm. that are members of CAFSA, um, and they all sort of have unique stories about how they came to be a part of the, the movement, um, uh, how they came to conclude that, you know, um, that fraternities need to be removed from Locust Walk and, mm-hmm. and, and what's sort of motivating that those goals. Um, and what kind of questions is this piece asking and answering that hasn't been, haven't been covered before in other articles? Yeah, well, I, I think we're trying to dive a little bit deeper into, um, you know, because wh- it's, it's the, the this, this, um, uh, how do I how do I put this exactly? So th- there's this sort of um, not not anti Greek life per se, but this this current of um, you know the people that are are strongly motivated to stop sexual assault and there and there there are you know connections obviously between um, the more pernicious parts of Greek life and sexual assault um, on campus and and there you know there's data to back that up right so. Um, We've seen uh, these sort of movements uh, many, many times over the years, uh, but CAFSA is um, somewhat unique uh, in how organized they are, I think, um, and how, how clear and, and direct their, their goals are. Um, and so if there's any questions, you know, what we're uh, f- foremost, we're, you know, trying to present all of this information to our readers and let them draw their own conclusions. But if, if there's any sort of question we're trying to answer or, or angle, it's about you know um, the people who are really motivated um, to to make this change and who are becoming activists on this particular issue. Uh, what's what's sort of behind that? Um, and and also just what are the stories of um, people in general with Greek life? And, um, and you know th- those stories have been told in a lot of different ways. We obviously just had the pen monologues last weekend um, talking about sexual assault stuff like that, um, and we've had uh, pieces about Greek life uh, in the past in street and in the DP, um, but, I, but I hope that this will, this will be an interesting piece looking at this specific organization and the reactions to it uh, and, and the motivations behind it. Awesome. So as we said earlier, uh, two places you can find this piece, Sam. One's in print. Where can we find print issues? 
Print issues will be in the little little boxes by the door of the building you're probably in right now. If not, there's definitely somebody handing it out on the compass right now, unless you didn't listen to this ish- episode when it first came out, in which case maybe there isn't. Um, but hopefully you're listening to it and you can get it handed to you on the compass uh, or in one of the many boxes and bins around campus by the quad, all this sort of stuff. Or you can read it online at 34st.com. That's right. 34st.com. Um, it should be the very first thing uh, right at the top of the page uh, when you go to our homepage. Carefully um, edited by Sam. Carefully edited with some beautiful um, illustration design from our design team. Um, yeah, it's going to be a great piece. So definitely check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> You're so very welcome. And uh, if I may may speak, you know, in in the in the mother tongue of my my so valued podcast guests here, uh, arrivederci.